0: Welcome to the latest episode of British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, the podcast where we explore history together and see how history shows us what's possible for us in our lives today. I'm Carol Ann Lloyd, your host and tour guide as we travel back in time We're shaking up history to look at the stories that don't always make the history books, to consider famous and infamous characters in new and interesting ways, and to look for all the things that we share, even when we're living in different times and places. I hope you enjoy this journey through the royals, rebels, and romantics of Britain. Now, let's explore history together. Hello, and welcome to British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I'm your host and tour guide to the past, Carol Ann Lloyd. Join me today as we travel back in time to the 16th century, where we'll be doing the Tudor tango. It's time for queens and coronations. Many things make the Tudor dynasty a significant changing point in English history. There are so many queen consorts. After all, Henry VIII gave us six of them, making him the most married monarch in English history. But one thing we don't always pay as much attention to is there are more single, regnant queens in Tudor times than in any other dynasty. Never before and never since have two back-to-back crowned monarchs been single women. The ceremonies and pageants that made up the coronations of Mary I and Elizabeth I give us great insight into these two half-sisters and their reigns. The first challenge these two women faced was that they were, well, women— Not since 1135 had a woman inherited the throne of England, and that ended in civil war and disaster. No one believed a woman could or should govern a country. As the first crowned queen, Mary's coronation followed essential traditions that had shaped the monarchy for hundreds of years and had some unique elements because she was a woman. For example, part of the coronation ceremony was the creation of new Knights of the Bath, Traditionally, the man about to be crowned king would observe the ceremony of bathing. Of course, this wasn't possible for the queen. Mary sent a male representative, the Earl of Arundel, and the ceremony went on. This is just one indication of how completely everyone assumed the coronation would be of a king. The coronation ceremony itself was also specifically designed for a man and possibly a queen consort, his wife. Mary's coronation had to be reimagined to crown a queen who held the power. Ultimately, Mary played both roles in her coronation and presented herself as a queen and a king, or as a queen with the power of a king. According to some contemporary reports, she wore her hair down as a consort would, but was anointed and crowned as a king. A crown was placed on Mary's head three times— As was customary, she was crowned with St. Edward's crown first, and then with the imperial crown of the realm. Then Mary was crowned with a smaller crown, made especially for her. She was invested with a traditional regalia, rings, bracelet, scepter, orb. The Bishop of Winchester fastened on the spurs and girder with the sword, as he would have done with a king. According to some reports, at the end of the ceremony, Mary held two scepters, one of the king and one of the queen consort. Mary also made an effort to reduce anxiety about her gender by assuring everyone she would quickly marry. By taking on the traditional woman's role as wife and future mother, Mary was positioning herself as less threatening. After all, there would soon be a man in the picture to bring wisdom and order to Mary's reign. Five years later, Elizabeth faced the same gender challenge. The unfortunate reality of another woman on the throne was no more welcome than it had been the first time. All the failures of Mary's role, from the loss of Calais to the bad harvest to the unpopular participation in her husband's war, were blamed in part on Mary's gender. In many ways, Elizabeth stepped in her sister's footsteps. She is said to have worn her sister's coronation robes. Bishop Oglethorpe administered customary oaths to Elizabeth that had been administered to Mary and to the kings before her, to keep the laws and customs of England, to keep peace to the Church and the people, and to execute justice in mercy and truth. Unlike Mary, who chose to lie prostrate before the altar, as previous kings had done, Elizabeth chose to kneel during the anointing and consecration. Elizabeth was anointed with oil, as was traditional. As Mary had, Elizabeth received the symbols of power associated with the monarchy. The scepter and orb came last. At that point, she was crowned in a similar mode to Mary, first with St. Edward's crown, then with the imperial crown, and finally with a third, smaller crown. Some scholars think this might have been the crown that was made for her mother, Anne Boleyn. Like Mary, Elizabeth emerged from her coronation as both king and queen. But unlike Mary, she did not rush to assure her council and her country that she would quickly marry. At best, her comments about marriage were ambivalent, sometimes indicating a determination to marry, other times indicating a determination to remain single. Throughout her reign, Elizabeth simply positioned herself as chosen by God to be the monarch, and therefore not subject to the natural limitations of her gender. Much later in her reign, she described how she embodied the notion of king and queen when she declared, I have the body of but a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. In other words, Elizabeth took the beginning of the notion that Mary started of being both king and queen and carried it to a much greater realization in her reign. Another challenge both Mary and Elizabeth faced was that of religion. Each followed a monarch who was zealous and dedicated to a religion she did not share. Each was crowned according to religious laws she did not believe. Each had to make choices about how to reconcile what she believed and what she was legally required to agree to. Mary's religion meant she almost didn't have a coronation. Her predecessor, half-brother Edward VI, was determined to have a Protestant heir, When he realized he was dying, he attempted to change the law to leave the throne to Lady Jane Grey so she could carry on his Protestant reform. But Mary responded quickly and decisively and gathered supporters. She took the throne from Jane Grey in less than two weeks with people rallying behind her. Encouraged, she approached her coronation, believing she was fulfilling God's will. She would restore England to the true faith, Catholicism. Mary's coronation provided an opportunity to express her religious beliefs. The problem was, for 20 years, England had not been a Catholic country. By law, there was no relationship with Rome, and the monarch was supreme head of the Church of England. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the man who would traditionally conduct the ceremony, was a Protestant. Many of the council had supported the efforts to preserve Protestantism by putting Jane Gray on the throne. Mary took some matters into her own hands. Before her coronation, she had the Archbishop of Cranmer arrested, thrown in the tower, and eventually executed. She selected her longtime supporter and fellow Catholic, Stephen Gardner, Bishop of Winchester, to conduct her ceremony. Concerned that the anointed oil had been tainted by Edward's Protestant ceremony, she asked the Bishop of Arras in Brussels to prepare special oil and secretly get it to Bishop Gardner for the anointing. Mary also chose not to use the ancient coronation chair, as she thought it might have been, quote, polluted by Edward. Mary had a platform constructed so people could see her, and she climbed 30 steps to a throne at the top of that platform. There is a report that the Pope sent over the chair Mary sat in for her coronation, but there's no evidence of it actually coming or what came of it. Legally, Mary could not avoid being named Supreme Head of the Church of England, a title and institution she completely rejected. She requested that Cardinal Pole absolve her and her bishops for taking this step. Mary reached out to and took counsel from the Pope and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, in designing her coronation and her reign. The steps she took in the coronation set her on a track that would see her do all she could to restore England's relationship with Catholic Europe. Just as Protestant Edward did not want to leave his throne to a Catholic, Mary did not wish to leave her throne to a Protestant. But ultimately, she had no choice. Elizabeth would be next. When Elizabeth came to the throne, there weren't many Protestant church leaders around to crown her. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who was Catholic, had died. Many of the Protestant bishops had fled the country or been burned at the stake. The Catholic Archbishop of York refused to crown Elizabeth because he didn't consider her the rightful monarch. Elizabeth eventually persuaded Bishop Oglethorpe to conduct the ceremony. The ceremony did not make Elizabeth supreme head of the Church of England as the Church of England did not legally exist at the time of her coronation. Elizabeth's ceremony was a combination of Catholic and Protestant practices. The elevation of the host is part of the ceremony. Some reports state that this Catholic rite was eliminated at Elizabeth's request. Others state that the host was elevated and Elizabeth withdrew from the ceremony in protest. The ceremony was conducted in Latin and English according to Catholic and Protestant tradition. This actually provides an insight into how she wished to conduct her reign. As long as her subjects were loyal to her and to England, Elizabeth is reported to have said that she had no wish to, quote, open windows into men's souls. Early in her reign, Catholics and Protestants served together in the council, just as the coronation had combined Catholic and Protestant Latin and English rites. The final challenge Mary and Elizabeth faced was perhaps the most problematic, legally they both had been declared illegitimate. It had taken Henry VIII three wives to get his much desired son, and to get to wife number three, he declared marriages one and two invalid and both daughters illegitimate. Although the Third Succession Act in 1543 returned Mary and Elizabeth to the succession, Henry never made them legitimate. The question was, could a woman declared illegitimate by law be crowned Queen of England? Members of Mary's Privy Council suggested that Parliament meet before her coronation to ratify her claim to the throne. This was opposite of the traditional order, where the king was crowned and then called his first Parliament. In the traditional order, the newly crowned king validated Parliament. The Privy Council suggested was that Parliament would validate Mary's coronation. Mary recognized this would forever weaken her position creating the idea she was beholden to Parliament for her royal power. She refused to alternate the order of events. Mary was crowned Queen 1st of October, 1553, and she held her first Parliament later that month. Mary did turn to Parliament to reinforce her legitimacy. One of the first acts of Parliament was to declare that the marriage of Henry Eighth and Catherine of Aragon was valid— this made Mary legitimate. The Queen used this seal of approval during the Wyatt Rebellion. She reminded her subjects that she was queen by virtue of God's will, evidenced by her coronation, and parliamentary law. As such, she was due their allegiance. It seemed to work. Once again, the people rallied to Mary, and Wyatt's rebellion was put down quickly. Mary also reinforced her legitimacy through the clear support shown her by the Pope and Charles V. They had been her champions throughout Edward's reign, and they made their allegiance clear once she took the throne. Catholics in England were eager to have Mary on the throne, and the question of her legitimacy was more or less put to rest. Elizabeth's proclamation as queen upon Mary's death called attention to her perceived de- deficits. When Elizabeth was proclaimed queen, she was identified as the, quote, Only right heir by blood and lawful succession to the crown, not the imperial crown, as Edward and Mary had been proclaimed. Elizabeth was not declared supreme head of the Church of England, as Mary had eliminated the Church of England. Once again, the Privy Council suggested that Parliament should meet before the coronation and clarify that she was the legitimate heir to the throne. Like Mary, Elizabeth said no. Instead of taking the advice to get parliamentary approval before her coronation, Elizabeth took the advice of one of her lawyers, Nicholas Bacon. He told her to move forward as quickly as possible to her coronation, for, quote, "the crown once worn quite taketh away all defects whatsoever." End quote. Elizabeth took Bacon's advice and proceeded quickly toward her coronation. She took the suggestion of BFF Robert Dudley To have John Dee, mathematician, astrologer, and occultist, choose an opportune date that would lead to a successful reign. Dee selected 15 January 1559, and preparations began. Elizabeth made full use of the pre coronation events to reinforce the strength of her claim to the throne. After spending two nights in the Tower of London, as was traditional before the coronation, Elizabeth publicly thanked God for his help in bringing her from her er earlier experience as prisoner in the Tower to her coronation. Most people knew that she had been prisoner less than five years ago. Such a transformation certainly seemed to indicate only God could have made it happen. On the procession to Westminster, Elizabeth played her part to perfection, asked the procession to slow down so she could listen attentively to her subjects, thank them for their gifts, respond to their good wishes as they called out, "God save your grace!" she responded, and God save you all!" There were several pageants performed along the way to reinforce her magnificence and her right to the throne. For example, the pageant of Roses had people representing Henry the Seventh and Elizabeth of York, then Henry the Eighth and Anne Boleyn, and finally Elizabeth herself the red and white combined roses reinforced Elizabeth's place as the natural inheritor of the Tudor crown. In this way, the validation of Elizabeth's legitimacy was presented as a fait accompli. It wouldn't be addressed by Parliament because there was no need. Elizabeth walked to her coronation the next morning on full display for people to see. When she appeared in Westminster Hall, she was dressed in the traditional crimson parliament robes. She participated in the traditional elements of coronation. She sat in the traditional coronation chair. She was crowned three times with St. Edward's crown and the imperial crown and a smaller crown. Elizabeth's coronation had echoes of that of her half-sister, but it also represented her own success— She embraced Bacon's belief that the crown, once worn, took away all defects. She wore that crown for nearly 45 years. Two half-sisters, single women, crowned according to religious laws they did not believe, similarities, differences. But most significantly, the first two crowned regnant queens Tudor coronations. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the coronation of two queens. Please join us next time as we explore the Wars of the Roses and John of Gaunt's love life. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with a friend. Do send any questions or comments I'd love to hear from you where we should explore next. And please subscribe and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. I'm so glad we could explore history together. Till next time.